Tusker Talk, a podcast from Somer Schools. I'm Amanda Bergen, the district's communications coordinator. I'm joined by several international baccalaureate diploma candidates from Somers High School, along with High School Writing Center instructor Christine Drysdale. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hi. So these kids have just finished their extended essay project for the IB Diploma Program, which is a major long-term and very challenging requirement of the IB Diploma, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So let's just go around first and have you introduce yourselves. Okay. Um, I'm Mackenzie Burner. I'm Val Tillman. I'm Katie Taylor. Tell me a little bit about the IB program for people who may not understand what it is. Um, well, the IB program is it's an advanced um, curriculum, but it's more geared toward people who would like to learn from a global perspective um, and who really value the process of writing and what it can reveal. So um, in previous classes, it was very um, content-based, and um, you learn something and then you regurgitate it back onto um, a test or um, an assignment. And IB is very much more um, analytical. So you learn about something and you do learn content, but then you analyze that content and you ask, like, why, and you ask questions surrounding that. And it's very more of, like, um, on assessments, it's very writing-based. So it's more like they give you a broad topic and you sort of reveal what you know about that topic rather than specific questions about content. The other thing that's important to know about IB is it's very uh, holistic. So in order to be a diploma candidate, uh, you have to take courses in six different groups. So that includes an arts, a history, a math, an English, a foreign language. Those courses are also very um, interdependent of one another. So um, what we learn in English often connects to what we're doing in history, to what we're doing in math. Mm -hmm. Um, They're very much interdependent, and that's actually something I've learned through IB, is that you can't really learn anything in isolation. Mm -hmm. So um, we learned... Um, our, liter- our works of literature we analyzed range from Elie Wiesel's Night, which um, well, took place in Germany. And then there was Persepolis, which is Iran. Um, and then that's connecting to what we're doing in history. And then in um, I studied genocide through math and statistics. So it's very um, interdependent. So does that mean that your, your teachers are working together very closely as well? Yeah, so there is some purposeful amount of, okay, so in English we're reading this right now, and then in, in history, history, let's yeah. look at how we talk about sources and voices. Um, but in other times, it's been more accidental, and I think that's almost been the more enlightening portion of right, it. Of that's the, what I was gonna... Anything can be a connection. So just as an example, um, like my math internal assessment looks oh, yeah. at um, the rate of change in when sunrise and sunset is on any given day in two different locations in New York. Um, so looking at the math behind sunrise and then reading a beautiful poem that is set among a sunset and maybe a different country even, um, seeing, okay, look, you can talk about a sunset both very mathematically and in beautiful yeah, language. My math is actually on, um, so I'm really into human rights and I taken criminal law, I thought about law as a possible future course for me, and my math IA is about... What's an IA? Oh, sorry. An IA is an internal assessment, so similar to the extended essay, just on a smaller scale, um, we have internal assessments in most of our classes, um, or something comparable to that nature, and it's like mini research papers um, in each course subject that fit a certain criteria. Okay, and your math IA is, what were you saying? Um, it's on, so, misused probability and statistics in the courtroom, and how that can lead to wrongful convictions, and how those wrongful convictions are a violation of human rights. 
So I, that's something I was interested in, wrongful convictions. Like, I've been interested in that, and I was able to... So in school, I um, like to keep my... I'm very passionate in the humanities. So uh, you only have nine periods in a day, and you want to fill up that with stuff that you're interested in, and I haven't really had the opportunity to learn the math behind why things happen the way they do in this certain case. And my IA um, gave me that chance to learn that. And um, what that made me think about is when you said it seems coincidental that yeah. the courses um, connect. What is not coincidental and is very purposeful and important in our discussion about the extended essay is the fact that all of the classes have writing-based inquiry projects that draw upon a student's personal interest. Right. So yes, yeah, students are learning content in what is called perhaps a survey type part of the course. But they always, in every single IB subject area, they have the opportunity to do inquiry and research into an area of their own interest in that subject area. And all of that then prepares them for this extended essay experience. So mm -hmm. that really is an important thread that mm -hmm. I highly value about the IB experience. And having that personal choice really makes us all take ownership of it. So this was my idea and it's something I'm really engaged in. Uh, you become invested in it over the months that you're reading background material or actually writing the paper. So I found personally um, the work I've done through IB is some of the work I'm most proud of. Um, because it was mine from the beginning and it was mine at the end and um, it was such a joy to see how it evolved over time. In fact, you were saying earlier that people have been asking you, aren't you relieved that you're done? What did you say? Um, I am not relieved that it's done because I loved writing it so much. It was my baby for a year and now <laughs> it's sort of this final piece of work. Um, and I love to write. I'm sort of a writer by nature. Um, so the idea that something is published and I can't revise it anymore is scary for me in any event. So magnify that over the 12 months I worked on this. Yeah. So what would you say to somebody who is considering becoming an IB diploma candidate? Do it. No. <laughs> <laughs> Do it, especially if you'd like to be prepared for college writing. Yes, what actually, in all seriousness, in the preparation for college, I don't think before this year I really did any in-depth research. Like, we've done research projects. I used quotes there. I don't know. Using <laughs> <laughs> um, We've done research projects where we've only been given a couple weeks to research and then produce a final product, and that's not enough time to thoroughly research as I've learned through this process. Like, you're going through historical texts, and then you're looking at those footnotes, and you're going to those footnotes, and you're going through scholarly journals, and you're using a plethora of sources. Um, and I... Like, I've done that through, like, almost all of my classes, and to the point where now I almost don't know how to write a paper without doing thorough yeah. research. Like, we've had history papers now this year where we went back to not doing research, and I was like, how do I write a paper without? Um, so, like, knowing how to do that, doing that here with the resources of a high school setting um, is very helpful for, then like, being able to go into college to do it on my own without those, like, one-on-one -on -one resources. I think it's really for people who are ready to be a participant in a community. Um, on any given day, you're having so many different conversations about so many different interesting things because everyone is so interested in what they're doing. Um, so on any given day, um, Mackenzie and I had similar history IA topics, and we were both looking at the role of the women's rights movement, sort of the 1970s era. I was looking at it from a legal perspective, and she was looking at it from more of a protest perspective. Right. And we would come in on any given day and say, like, oh, my gosh, I actually did send an article to Mackenzie one day. Of, <laughs> oh, I just saw this New York Times piece. Look at it. Yeah. Um, so having that basis of conversation among your students and with 
uh, your teachers. So it's, since it's a small program, especially as we begin, there's so much one-on-one time with um, teachers. So having a, an extended essay supervisor where you can just sit down and talk about your writing and your process um, or the opportunities of any of your classes where you're having one-on-one time to talk about what is writing, what is, a, what is your process like, what is research, um, and what do you hope to do with your research question. It sounds like it's a very um, writing-heavy yes. program, but if, is there more beyond that? It's not just writing, correct? No. no it's, it's not just writing, and I would say one of the features of the IB program that we were very attracted to is that regardless of whether it's a writing assessment or not, IB's um, assessment criteria is really grounded in the idea of how can we give students the options to show what they know, not catch them on what they don't know. So um, yes, there is a lot of writing, but any of the assessments give them choice in that way. I, I think there's also a lot of discussion. So what I came from and I'm sure Katie came from too, was classes where we'd have discussions periodically and it'd normally be the same three or four people talking and I was one of those people and I'm sure (laughs) you were one of those people and it got sort of, it made, um, it was almost like divisive, I guess. Um, And in IV, we have discussions every day and um, it's very inclusive, so like, everyone talks and everyone wants to talk every time which was very different than I was used to and um, we something we learned this year or throughout IB was also not only learning how to have analytical discussions but how to facilitate those analytical Mm -hmm. discussions so in English we had um, these FOAs or further oral analysis (laughs) and we we, um, take a topic and you you make presentations in English but then you have discussion questions and you basically have a conversation with the class about what you investigated Um, and that was different from the past where we just regurgitated the information that we were the other thing I will say on the math science note um, so I was honestly a little bit nervous when I went into IB because I had taken very advanced math courses if I wasn't an IB student I would have been taking BC Calc my junior year um, and also very advanced science courses Uh, I was a science research student at the time so I did that my sophomore and junior year and had done very well in competitions so I thought okay so I know I love to write but is this going to be challenging enough in math and science Um, I have to say, so I am in both uh, Mathematics HL, which I take online, and Physics HL. Um, Math, especially. Oh, sorry, HL. So you take HL courses. Yeah. Um, So that's higher level and SL courses, which is standard level. Um, It's sort of a misnomer to think like, oh, one is harder than the other. An HL course just has more course hours associated with it. In math, the case is kind of. In math, it's a little bit more stratified in terms of math level. Um, so Math HL is sort of the hardest course you can take in math in Somers. Um, and I the take HL it online. Stretch over two years. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I will say that my Math HL tests are the hardest math test I've ever taken by far. Um, they're stretching you in how you approach a problem. It's not, okay, here's a polynomial that I'm throwing up on the board and you're going to have to analyze the problem in the exact same way on the test. It's a matter of you understand the concept and then here you go, you have 50 possible marks in 50 minutes, go see what you can do. Um, so I found math very challenging, and because physics is a two-year course, typically I'd only be able to take it for like honors and then AP or something like that. Uh, we're really deep diving into the subject, so we just finished nuclear and quantum physics, so I can tell you all about bosons and uh, mm-hmm. anything you could want to know about really tiny things. Um, you can tell me, but I won't understand. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I've been happily surprised by the rigor of the math and science courses. 
So I know that there are actually a couple hundred students taking taking IB classes within right. the program. Mm -hmm. How many students are? How many? diploma candidates are there for, and what's the difference? Well for our year we have eight students left in the diploma candidacy. Yeah, we call ourselves the cohort. Yeah, the, the cohort. And then the year below us, which are the 11th graders, have 12? There's 13, 13 students, 13. 11th graders currently pursuing the full diploma Right. Program. So if you're a diploma um, certificate student, you it just means that you're taking one or a couple or a few of the courses, and you really just have to abide by the um, standard criteria for um, that the courses that you're enrolled in. So there are those internal assessments I mentioned before. Um, for English, we have certain things like um, written tasks or internal oral com individual oral commentaries or IOCs. So you're just following the standards for those classes and that's all you're responsible for. If you're a um, diploma candidate, then you are taking one class from each of the six groups and you are abiding by not only all of those qualifications, or those standards, um, but also the external requirements for the IB program. So you have um, CAS, which is Creativity, Activity, and Service, and you do a project around that, um, and our extended essays, like we're going to talk about. We also take Theory of Knowledge, which right. is an epistemology course. Um, it's like so it's sort of how do you know what you know, um, and more specifically, it gives us the terminology to ask about questions um, and verify our sources or... Um, just think about thinking in more broad terms. And that's sort of intertwined in, throughout our courses, too. We yes. do use, um, And that TOK course, as we call it, Theory of Knowledge, there is a certain uh, section that is only for the diploma candidates, which makes it the place that this community cohort really comes together, and it's the place that I can push in to um, remind them of extended essay deadlines and share resources. Same for Ms. McClary, who runs the CAS portion. So if you are a student who really does like that idea of moving together with a cohort of a small group of students um, and teachers, and you are very independent in your work, because yeah. you don't have to be a strong writer um, to necessarily succeed in the IV program. What you need to do is you need to be intrinsically motivated, mm -hmm. curious, right. and um, kind of independent in your ability to you know, see things through that you love. And you'll get yeah. to be a much better writer by For the sure. end of it. Right. I would, oh, sorry, I just wanted to add, because um, something that reminded me when we were talking about theory of knowledge, um, about talking about the benefits of the IB program, I really, and the interdependency of courses and all of that, what that has shown me is I, it really taught me a lot about the world. So um, I was on a panel at NYU, and I was reading an essay because I had won a contest, and through each of the categories, you sat on a panel, and you, the panel was asked questions. And like, I realized that every single question, like the other panels were asked, and my panel was asked, like I could talk like in depth about mm -hmm. every single question because um, one was about artificial intelligence, which we talked about in theory of knowledge, um, which was really cool, by the way. Mm -hmm. And then we talked about um, there was Shakespeare, and it was just so versatile in what the curriculum includes. So um, that's just I have the IB program to thank for that. Well, we've talked about the extended essay a lot, and I would love to hear samples from your work. So the probably the introduction is, these are 14 to 16 page essays, right? Yeah. So I don't think we have time for you to read the whole essay. <laughs> as wonderful as I'm sure they are. Them. I wish we had time. <laughs> but let's get a sample from each of you. Okay, yeah. All right, so um, 
is there a title to all the essays? Yes. Okay, why don't you go ahead and tell me the title, um, and then dive right in and read the introduction to yours. Okay, so the title of my extended essay is The Closeness of the Actions of the United States Military During the Philippine-American War to Acts of Genocide. The term genocide, a hybrid of the Greek root genos, meaning race, and the Latin suffix side, meaning killing, was invented by lawyer Raphael Lemkin in 1944 and has since been used to describe the systematic killing of various peoples. As a descriptor, the word's meaning can be somewhat subjective. The term itself is received with considerable sensitivity, which generally leads many to fear that using it to describe taboo or unpopular events is careless or may even deprive the word of its powerful connotation. This is the result of controversy regarding statistics, ethics, and circumstance. The latter is typically used when defending the effort, efforts of world powers to regulate the development of infantile nations, specifically when civilians are disproportionately targeted or when the means of intervention involves a systemized form of killing. A specific example is the measures, measures taken by the United States during the Philippine-American War. This war was a reaction of the United States to the insurgency in Philippines following its annexation as a result of the Treaty of Paris, and one significant factor of this was disbelief that the archipelago would survive as an autonomous state. There was, as seen in various historical accounts, a conspicuous racial sentiment associated with the war. The U.S. took it upon itself to satisfy the pseudo-paternalistic role of civilizing the Filipino people, whom they perceived to be savages. On the same note, the psyche of the Americans was affected by the subjective of the war, and one American soldier was reported to have written that he hoped that U.S. troops would fight until the epithet were killed off like the Indians. Being that the aforementioned statement was taken from a letter by an American soldier, it can be assumed that the race of the Filipinos, Filipinos had an, a significant effect on the Americans. Letters were often used to express sincere emotions during the war, so the opinions expressed were likely to the product of the soldiers' experience of the war, and therefore the reaction to the race of the Filipinos. Other reported events during the war bring into question the credibility of the United States military, such as the congregation of American soldiers to view the torture of civilians for fun, as well as the rounding up of civilians into detention camps. The U.S. military had the clear objective to control the Filipinos by way of degradation and terror, which makes it necessary to examine their actions through a more globally sensitive lens. So what was it about this topic that interested you? So I actually got into the Philippine-American War after we wrote an essay about it in our history class. Um, and I just thought it was something that was really invisible in American history, and I wanted to understand more about it. Um, and I wanted to understand really how their actions were genocidal in nature and why people might be afraid of describing them in such a way. What were you able to do as a result of having an entire year to work on this essay? Um, I had the opportunity to look into a really diverse range of sources and understand how um, the viewpoints of different historians would affect my interpretation of the events um, and the way that I would be able to justify them as genocidal. Um, I also realized that um, many historians were actually very hesitant to describe it as genocidal just because the word has such a restrained 
definition um, because it is a really contemporary term. So in addition, in addition to looking at specific events that occurred during the war, I was also sort of able to examine the etymology of the word genocide and how words can be subject to evolution. Um, and even though we haven't owned the word genocide for a really long time, it could still be um, applied to events that occurred before its invention. What surprised you the most in this research? Have you, or have you come away with any different opinions or feelings about the conflict? Um, it made me realize how racialized wars can be uh, between imperialist nations and, and um, more infantile ones. Um, of course, I wasn't, it wasn't a new concept to me, but I didn't realize that it would be, it would be, um, so dramatic, um, to the point where there would be, uh, joy in the killing and the torture of civilians. Uh, so it was definitely really surprising to me to realize that this was my country that had done things like this and essentially got away with it. Um, and it was even more surprising to me to realize that Filipinos today actually have um, a fairly positive view of the of the United States, despite this happening, just because compared to the other things that happened to them, such as more recently during World War II, um, intervention by the Japanese, how that was, uh, by comparison, even worse than what the Americans did, and then even the, St the Spaniards before the Americans, which uh, the Americans really view themselves to be liberating the Filipinos from the Spaniards. Um, so it was really interesting to see how these things sort of connect to each other and how um, our perceptions of, of conflicts uh, may not always be correct. Mm -hmm. Congratulations on finishing it. It sounds like a huge project. Thank you. Katie, um, read the title if you would and then your introduction. So my title for my extended essay is American Grace and Rhetoric, the Evolution of Presidential Language in the United States. And here's my introduction. The President of the United States derives power from his or her faith in the overarching principles of the nation. The position demands loyalty to the American promises first uttered within the f founding documents of a flawed, fledgling government. Yet, with each piece of legislation, movement of history, or presidential address, there's an opportunity to create a more perfect union. Presidents Lincoln and Obama each began in Illinois state politics when national politics threatened the unity of the United States, the moral and geographical chasm of slavery and the divisions of the modern world, respectively. The two men rejected the dichotomies that threatened the nation. They believed in possibilities they declared to be unique to the United States, the communal faith in the presence of a just and mysterious God, and the capacity of rhetorical grace to begin the healing of American sins. Polysyndeton, asyndeton, colloquialisms, extended metaphors, insistent conjunctions, biblical and historical allusions, and tricolons assemble into rhetoric encasing a simple insistence on faith in the American people and government. Lincoln and Obama began as optimistic radicals and matured to measured commanders and national leaders who eulogized and searched for meaning in tragedy. Therefore, this investigation will respond to the question, to what extent does the language of United States Presidents Abraham Lincoln and Barack Obama evolve as they campaign in government? Through close rhetorical analysis of four speeches, Lincoln's House Divided speech and his second inaugural address, and Obama's 2004 Democratic National Convention keynote, and the eulogy following the shooting at the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. This research question is worthy of investigation because it explores the inextricable links between precise language, hopeful faith, and united identity at a time when all three threaten to erode within American discourse. 
Ultimately, the language of Lincoln and Obama evolves with the challenge of the office, but neither president abandons foundational, constructive faith in American government. Why did you decide on this topic? So, uh, as I said earlier, I love to write. I'm sort of a writer by nature, um, but I'm also really interested in politics. Um, I sort of came of age during the Obama, pol uh, the Obama presidency, and I knew I, um, he was special because he was both a politician and a writer. Uh, and I wanted to do sort of a closer rhetorical analysis of his speeches. Um, I had the opportunity to take AP English Language and Composition my sophomore year. So we did a lot of rhetorical analysis in that class, and I thought sort of how cool would it be if I could extend something we normally did in 40-minute bursts into a year-long essay. Um, so I knew that I was very interested in President Obama, and um, I then sort of started with this idea of, oh, I'll look at a bunch of different presidencies and analyze all of their speeches, and then realized that even with a year and 16 pages, I cannot study everything. Um, so that whittled down to Presidents Lincoln and Obama. Um, but this idea did sort of come to me earlier than many. One of the reasons I signed up to be an IB diploma candidate is because I really wanted to write an extended essay. Um, I know some of my classmates sort of all of a sudden um, fell into their topics in a way. It was a later process, but for me, I knew what I wanted to write about, um, and it's been uh, really cool to see it all work out. What's your main takeaway, having done this project <sighs> on this particular topic? Mm. Um, that it's really complicated to talk to an entire nation um, <laughs> because um, they had to balance so many different things um, and also know that someone like me will be reading them in the future. So not only did Lincoln have to sort of confront a nation just as the Civil War was ending, he had to be mindful of the fact that we would be reading it in a time when there wasn't a Civil War ending. Um, he had to contextualize it within sort of the arc of the nation, but also... Um, there were so many different little connections that Obama linked back to Lincoln. Um, one of President Obama's speeches was actually titled The Just and Lasting Peace, which is uh, a few of the last words of Lincoln's second inaugural. Um, so how challenging it is to not only speak to a moment, but um, speak when you know that history will record what you said. Mackenzie, tell me about your essay. First of all, how many pages is it? Mine is 16 pages. Oof. And it was over a year. Yes, it was actually, um, so when I first looked at exem exemplars, is what we called them, so when you found your topic, you look at an example, I was like, how am I going to write a paper this long? And I realized it was not enough pages. Um, I think it was like 25 pages when I first wrote it, and then I cut it down. So, <laughs> yeah, it's not that much. <laughs> All right, why don't you tell us the title and go yeah. ahead and read your introduction. So my title is United States Intervention Leads to Genocide. Um, okay. In 1975, one of the worst genocides since World War II claimed the lives of 1.3 to 3 million Cambodians. Khmer Rouge forces under the leadership of Pol Pot ravaged Cambodia with the goal of transforming the country into an agrarian utopia. In furtherance of their goal, the Khmer Rouge conducted mass evacuations from cities into labor camps, where they performed mass executions, facilitated forced labor, induced malnutrition, and created conditions where illness was prominent. The cause for this disastrous state of Cambodia can be explained through the tumultuous nature of the second half of the 20th century. During the period following World War II, pinned the two super world superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union, against each other, dragging smaller nations into the struggle. Each power raced to exert their influence over regions of Latin America and Southeast Asia, and Cambodia became one of the United States' biggest victims. Under Cambodian leader Prince Sihanouk, the United States attempted to undermine neutrality by economic and political means. 
In the late 1960s, the United States conducted a series of secret bombing campaigns in Cambodia. This operation created anti-capitalistic sentiment, allowed Khmer evacuations into labor camp, and left Cambodians in a chaotic state, able to be conquered by the Khmer Rouge. These factors raise the question that will be examined throughout this essay. To what extent were the U.S. efforts to undermine Cambodian neutrality during the Vietnam War a cause of the Cambodian genocide? My passion for the subject grew out of my interest in preventing violations of human rights. I joined, I joined Model UN to pursue this interest, and in doing so, I took on the persona of the Cambodian foreign minister. Through this endeavor, I learned about the genocide that, today, that took place and U.S. actions that could have contributed to it. I continued my research by reaching out to Ben Kiernan, a professor at Yale University whose expertise is in Cambodian history during the Vietnam War. I also wanted to hear directly from survivors of the genocide, thinking it important that their voices be added to the conversation. In seeking their input, I not only read first-hand accounts of the genocide, but I also conducted an email interview with a survivor named Yu Aang, currently residing in Cambodia. I found his voice not only helpful, but also critical to the narrative, for he was the only one that could corroborate historians with first-hand experience. Investigating the causes of this egregious genocide is imperative in both preventing the repetition of similar circumstances and recognizing instances in which similar events are already occurring. In answering the question posed, this investigation will explore the impact of U.S. intervention in two eras of Cambodian history, under the reign of King Sihanouk and after his coup, when the bombing campaigns reached their peak. In, this, in investigating this question, the extent of U.S. intervention and its cause of the genocide must be measured. This paper will evaluate this based on culpability of the U.S. from a legal of the U.S. from a legal perspective. Culpability means, first and foremost, direct involvement in the wrongdoing, such as through participation or instruction. This investigation will explore the instances of U.S. involvement between 1953 and 1979 in depth and measure its culpability accordingly. Tell me about your sources. You use some fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when I first wanted to pursue this topic, I actually saw a documentary, and um, the account of one of the survivors really hit me. And um, a teacher in this school, who's actually the supervisor for someone else's extensive essay, um, put me in contact with um, his former roommate, um, who now lives back in Cambodia, and was a victim of, um, he and his family was a victim of the genocide when he was only five years old. Um, so I ended up conducting the email via email, mostly because the time differences were very different. <laughs> and he gave me some very um, critical insight into the his experiences and um, the causes for his endurances. And um, I did have to weigh it accordingly. He was five years old at the time. Um, memory. Did you learn anything from him that didn't match up with what you were reading? He mentioned... Um, a little bit about China, which I didn't really investigate as much, but I ended up not having the sufficient time to um, investigate those claims. I followed up with, so there's this famous historian in um, the community of historians that he, everyone was citing him. He cited himself, which I guess is a lifelong goal of a historian to do. <laughs> um, but his name is Ben Kiernan, and he's currently a professor at Yale. Um, and I emailed him, and he didn't respond. So I emailed him again, and he didn't respond. And then I emailed him again, and he responded. Nice. Uh, <laughs> and he offered me um, his even more sources after that, so that allowed me to go even further in depth. So Good for you. Yeah, that's something that... Um, 
through CAS, um, Creativity, Activity, and Service, my CAS project, and this. Um, it really helped me not only grow as a writer, but grow as a person. Um, I don't see myself as a sophomore, like, and taking the initiative to reach out to people um, that are far away, yet all in a different country, um, went through these experiences. But what I found um, imperative with the survivors' voices, um, you can't really assume what a survivor went through without hearing it directly from them. So. What an interesting experience. Mm-hmm. No problem. <laughs> okay, so now that you are like, 18 months through the IB program, um, what do you think about it? Would you do it again? Yes. yes. Would you recommend it? Yes. yes. To anybody or to no. a specific kind of learner? You need to be really curious, and you need to be ready to learn about things that you think are interesting. You have to be passionate about things. Too. Yes. Like, I pursued things because I was really passionate about what I'm learning, and I really wanted to learn more. Um, but at the same time, you don't need to think like, oh, I don't know if I have a passion yeah, yet. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I shouldn't it, do it. It helps you find your passion. Exactly. So you sort of stumble upon it. You read a footnote. and Wow, that study sounds really interesting. And then you go read the study. And then you read the book that the same person wrote. Um, so that willingness to fall down those little intellectual rabbit holes uh, and see what makes yeah, you curious. You also you do have to be pretty good at managing your time as yes. well. Because there's a lot of... It's very different in that you don't have teacher saying do this for me by tomorrow I'm going to collect this homework tomorrow it's like very long term deadlines and you're doing things in steps and you have to set those steps for yourself at the same time you have the resources of a high school community so if you're struggling you can ask your teachers for help so um, and you need to start early enough so that you can ask those questions and you need to be um, responsible enough to do that and many of us balance very full schedules. Yes. So in a way, it's a great opportunity of, um, okay, I have a weekend. I'm going to write a whole um, portion of the essay um, so that during the week when you're participating fully in school, you don't need to be worried about um, the homework that you already got done. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you for being on our podcast. Thank you. We'd love to. Thank, Thank you. you.